ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there once more. Welcome to the minefield. Try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. And as we do so, we do so as a duo because, well, frankly, if I were doing this on my own, I'd be completely lost at sea. Scott might be too. I'll leave that for him to tell us. Willie Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hello, Scott. Hello, Willie. I'm not sure if that's sweet of you to say or whether I'm... I think it is. I'm your life raft. Well, either way. I I mean, that's a good thing. It's better than being a dead weight. Imagine that. That would be... I do know that you felt that from time to time, but I'm happy to... No, that is not true at all. Can I say this up front? I think just deceptively, this might be one of the most important topics we've done. Mm, I agree. From the perspective of the people who actually are listening to it, you know, we discuss a lot of big issues, bigger ones than this, in some sort of global, I, I don't know, what would you call it, a view of God type sense. But as far as what affects people's day-to-day lives, I think this is the creeper. Hmm. This is the one that probably, if it doesn't worry us most, perhaps should. Do you I agree with that? I agree completely. And let me tell you why that's kind of serendipitous. Because as in most things that really ought to be morally concerning to us, this is one of those topics that brings together, you're right, something that is very much daily, something that affects all of us, uh, something that is of genuinely common concern. We sometimes talk about, you know, the conditions of our common life or common goods. This really is one of those things that is genuinely common. And yet, and yet, far from it being simply prosaic or simply quotidian. It is a topic that intersects very deliberately with some of the highest principles, some of the highest aspirations of our democratic life. Um, This is one of those really lovely coming togethers of practicality and ideality, of uh, what it is we ought to aspire towards, and the very, very material ways in which those aspirations can either be realized or derailed. I think it's a marvellous topic, and I'm really glad you suggested it. And yet, you've spoken about it there at quite a high level. I wonder if the thing that makes this topic important is that it's it's both high and low. Yeah, exactly. It's conceptual and nitty-gritty. It it could show up in potentially day-to-day things, but in ways that you don't necessarily even appreciate if we don't pay attention to it. Mm. Anyway, perhaps we should put everyone out of their misery and (laughs) tell them what we're actually talking about. Do you want to take the first stab or shall I? No, I think you should, as in accordance with tradition. All right. We're talking about social cohesion. If you've been in any way really alive over the last week, you would have seen some kind of write-up, some sort of reflection about the Scanlon Foundation's recent mapping social cohesion report. It's really interesting. It's interesting in all sorts of different ways, in ways that we've already kind of touched on, because one of the great benefits, one of the, I think, unalloyed goods that the Mapping Social Cohesion Project has offered us over the last 16 years is it's given us a sense of trends over time. So even if you have a particular blip one year, a rise in something, a dip, Uh, then you can place that in its proper context. You can wonder how does this square with what else has been going on within the national life, with what else has been going on in the world. It also means those peaks are really notable. And then when those peaks do come, it gives you already the sense of what was unusual about this particular time, what extenuating circumstances led to, say, a massive increase in social trust or trust in government, as we experienced in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, That's not really either controversial or overly surprising. It's kind of like when, Mm. when the circumstances really tighten, when we really are thrown into something in common, even if it's experienced differently, and even if the certain underlying inequities manifest themselves in that common experience. Nonetheless, being thrown into the cauldron of a common threat really does sharpen, I think, our beliefs, our underlying sentiments about who we trust, what we trust them to do, whether we rely on their competence or not, and whether we really can trust the people all around us. I think it's incredibly encouraging 
that during a time that required very high levels of trust and very high levels of social conformity, if we can just put it that way, um, we rose to the challenge. We trusted one another and we trusted government. And to to a very large extent, this is something we're going to have to discuss a bit further, the extent to which we should have too much trust in government, what we can rightly expect from government. We're going to be discussing that a couple weeks down the road. Um, But it's interesting to me that for the most part, the state really did prove itself, demonstrate itself, for the most part, trustworthy, worthy of public trust. But I think what... Well, it was also an anticipatory trust, I think. If you're looking at the COVID years, and I don't want to delve too much into it, but I think there was a... We sort of came to realise that actually government might be the only institution that can help us here. Mm. And so what do you do in those circumstances? Well, you kind of trust it because you have to. Who else are you going to trust? And <laughs> you, you got to trust something, and and it, I think it probably follows from that that government rises to the occasion in a certain level, in a certain way. I don't know, maybe a kind of political version of a Pygmalion effect or something. I think, well, I think that's exactly right because on the one hand, there's that latent sense that maybe this is the only institution left that has the capability to rise to that particular challenge when we're faced with that particular threat. But there's also the recognition, and I think there was a kind of spontaneous recognition on the part of the public, that if we invest this degree of faith and trust in government, certain things will be capable, certain things will be possible, a kind of capability will be realized through that installation, that investment of faith, that simply won't be there otherwise. In other words, the very act of investing public faith becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. I like that you referred to it as a Pygmalion effect. Um, I I think it's something a little bit more like if we trust the government to do the right thing, uh, then the government will be thereby empowered to do the right thing. Yeah, except I think it's a bit more instinctive than that. Yes, I agree. I don't think it's reasoned in quite the same way. The bit that's interesting, though, about this report and the moment we're in right now, as the report reveals, is that trust has collapsed and not just in... It's not just a reversion to pre-pandemic levels. No, no, it's not. Although I haven't done this, I probably should have. I'd like to plot the graph and see if it is just a projection of what would have happened without the pandemic, as in if it's just kind of continually, it's reverted to where it was always heading Mm -hmm. rather than plummeted to a new low that it would not otherwise have reached. It would be a very interesting question, actually, because it would potentially say something about what the experience of the pandemic ultimately did. But it's not just about trusting government. It's about trusting each other. That's right. And I think what this report does really well is, if not demonstrate, then at least indicate the relationships that exist between all these dimensions, the economic dimensions of our lives, our economic struggles, which are very serious at the moment for a lot of people, and our sense of civic or social belonging. And with that, the things that are the very fundaments of democracy to do with trust in government, trust in each other. Mm. And, and this is one element that I think ties the economic and the social, a belief that hard work will bring prosperity or will bring its reward, which goes... The reason I say that's about social trust and and some kind of sense of social belonging is that's the thread that allows you to believe that while there may be problems here and there and distortions here and there, things are basically fair or fair enough. Um, Not in a way that allows us to say, if you're struggling, you deserve it but just in a way that says that there is reward for effort. It's not purely some kind of, I don't know, arbitrary and unfair lottery in which there is absolutely nothing that anyone can do with their lives in order to improve it. Once you get to a situation I've just described, I think you begin to lose hope in the very idea of society. Yeah. Can, um, I, can I pick you up on that just really quickly? Because I I suspect one of the things we're going to be doing throughout this conversation is shuttling back and forth between something like lived experience and then... Data. uh, Yes, data, but also I think there are a number of really interesting philosophical accompaniments to this that, far from obscuring, actually make things a little bit more clear. So, for instance, one of the things that has been, I think, rightly understood about inequality ever since Jean-Jacques Rousseau, is that there are things, of course, that happen to us and it is simply misfortune. 
you can't assign blame to it. It's the accidents of birth. It's the slings and arrows of, uh, of misfortune that constitute human life as such. But one of the things that Rousseau recognized, I think it was picked up really powerfully by someone like Judith Sklar. It was certainly recognized by John Rawls, is that once misfortune is not acted upon, in other words, once there is neither a political nor a social revulsion to the fact of misfortune, and that misfortune gets accepted either through a form of political inaction or political acceptance. This is the way in one respect or another it should be. The meritorious should rise to the top. Uh, or when it becomes accepted socially through a form of consent or acquiescence. Yes, there are some who, uh, due to choices they've made, have ended up in a particular social state, and now they effectively have to pay that price. And then the stigmatization that goes along with it. Once misfortune is accepted politically, or it's acquiesced to socially, then misfortune becomes injustice. Misfortune becomes inequity. And it's then that experience of inequity that is the hardest thing of all to bear. When I'm undergoing something, some trauma, some difficulty, some precarity, some crisis in life, and it's something that could be addressed by others through forms of sacrifice, philanthropy, charity, uh, renunciation, and the refusal to engage in what John Rawls beautifully called graspingness. I think it's a wonderful term for, for a vice, graspingness, uh, seizing more than one share. When other people engage in those forms of behavior instead of addressing a form of inequity that really could be addressed, or if a government through indolence, through contempt, uh, through various forms of pursuing social policy that are detrimental to certain forms of, of social cohesion, of political equality, and so on, those are then the forms of inequality that have a kind of moral dimension to them or an affective dimension. It's not just that I've undergone misfortune. It's that here I am undergoing humiliation because others can do something about this and they would do it if they were in this position, but they can't, they won't. And it's that experience then of humiliation, of inequality as a social or political sting. That's then the thing that breeds a condition of distrust, of viewing one another as threats or viewing uh, the state as an agency, a corporation, a body that is invested in one to one degree or another in the perpetuation of certain forms of inequity. Yeah, so I guess that's probably what I was trying to get at, wasn't it? With um, this sense that work doesn't bring reward any longer. Hmm. So people who reach that conclusion. And, and what's clear in this report, I think, is firstly, this is the lowest social cohesion level that's been measured in this report, right? And that's been going for, what is it, 16 years? Yeah, like two, since 2007. Yeah, so that's an important fact. But it was the clear connection that exists between economic struggle and social isolation and lack of trust that mm. is important here. Now, we could tease this out in a number of ways, but it puts me in mind of a conversation we must have had, I don't know, nine years ago on this show, where we spoke about whether or not liberal democracies have the capacity for social cohesion in the absence of economic well-being. Hmm. So it's possible to imagine, for example, so when we observe that in Australia right now, there is a clear relationship between economic struggle and social cohesion, social trust. Um, or the lack thereof. I think we need to say this is not necessarily a universal law in the way that gravity is a universal mm, law. That's right. This is a social phenomenon that exists in this place at this time and may well exist in a lot of places in a lot of times. But I don't think it necessarily follows that a society that has people who are struggling will not be a cohesive one. If it has some kind of cohesive glue, if it has some kind of social bond that exists either outside 
of economic struggle or or can somehow transcend it. And those bonds might be, I don't know, I'm just riffing here, they could be deeply cultural ones or yes. they could be religious ones mm-hmm. or they could be linguistic ones or they could be ones of threat. It's not hard to imagine a society, for example, that feels like it is deeply imperiled and is economically destroyed but nonetheless extremely cohesive because it feels like it's imperiled by, I don't know, it could be war or it could be famine or it could be, I don't know. Or uh, it could be internal threat. And here's where something like, uh, okay. I mean, again, this is what we've seen, where the idea of an external threat has been imported into the life of the community itself and for the experience of economic hardship to be overcome, that internal threat, which usually gets cast upon some particular racial, ethnic, religious, say, group, um, has to be done away with. Yeah, although I think that would be hard to then call social cohesion. It's kind of a... Yeah. It's the opposite of social cohesion in one sense, and it's it's a hyper-cohesion within a subset of the... Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. But I think what the point, anyway, that we're illustrating or dancing around is that cohesion isn't necessarily a product of economic well-being. And it's entirely possible to imagine quite wealthy societies that are not remotely cohesive because they have this sense of owing each other nothing. Mm. Maybe I'll put it that way. Mm. This was Bauman's great criticism of late capitalism or what you might call liquid modern capitalism or what he might have called as compared with other deeply unequal societies such as aristocracy or whatever is that in those social formations there was a lot of inequality, but there ran through them an idea or an ethos of patronage. So if you were part of the aristocracy, that came with certain obligations. You might call it a, a noblesse oblige or something. That's right. And that's not to say life was great for everybody and everyone loved it, but it, it means that to be part of the aristocracy carried an obligation towards people who weren't, who were either less fortunate or just cast into roles that that weren't aristocratic, right, <laughs> to put it that way. Um, whereas what late capitalism does is it says effectively to everyone you're on your own. So if you fail on those terms, you fail on your own and you are owed nothing by those who succeed on those terms. Now, there are kind of ameliorations of that. You might say the welfare system is an example of that. But we've seen a lot of welfare politics, haven't we? And we've mm-hmm. had a lot of conversations on this show about, well, robo-debt or, or about things like the unemployment benefit and the level of it and the fact that it was frozen for so long and has only now just been increased and not by very much and the number of people who are on it who are actually on or below the poverty line, et cetera, et cetera. So even the ameliorations don't go terribly far. I guess what I'm saying in this sort of really quite broad and perhaps meandering sketch is there are two ways we could approach this report. One is to say, this is terrible. We're at a breaking point. Society is sort of, the social fabric is really being thinned out and torn and society is kind of in slow motion falling apart here. And the core of it is economic and the core of it is economic inequality. And so we have to fix that or at least make policy in light of that. That's one way of approaching it, and I think that's a perfectly fair way of approaching it. There is another way of approaching it that's perhaps less pragmatic and less practical, but I think also bears thinking about, and that is, does this not reveal the thinness of the bonds that we have that aren't economic? Mm -hmm. The extent to which we are so dependent on economic well-being. And here, what scares me is Australia is economically comfortable by global comparison. I mean, we talk about our cost of living crisis and I'm not, let me be clear, for a moment denying that we have one and that there are people struggling under it. But I could point you in the direction of so many countries around the world and just about every comparable country where it is clearly worse, where the figures are worse, where the inflation rate is higher, where the level of inequality is greater. Some even quite developed countries. I mean, there there are places in the world now running at close to 100% inflation. Could we imagine imagine that? Our interest rates are high in the sense that they are crippling a lot of people, but they are not high by global standards. Mm. Around the world, interest rates are generally, in, in all comparable countries at least, higher than they are here. There might be an exception or two. I don't 
none come to mind at the moment. Um, that's one of the reasons the Australian dollar is weak, is that our interest rates are comparatively low. So how would we go if we were cast into those circumstances that are not that far away, that exist in other countries that are like us? To think that we are struggling this much and that in global comparative terms we have it good is a really, I think, chastening, perhaps even terrifying thought. Can I pick up on one thing there? And I, yeah. I broadly agree with you. I think there is a slightly different way, though, of construing the report. One is that there are, let's call it material conditions that cultivate the conditions of possibility of real social cohesion. I mean, we haven't actually defined what we mean by social cohesion. Mm, I mean, so, social true. cohesion is the affective dimension of democratic life. It's the extent to which we feel connected to one another. We regard ourselves and we comport ourselves towards one another not as threats or competitors for some scarcely available good or for some common pot, but rather people who are participants within a common life, co-workers towards a common goal. And therefore, you know, social cohesion is all really about sort of fellow feeling. It's about hopefulness versus pessimism. It's about there being enough to go around uh, rather than there being this being a kind of zero-sum game. And I think even more importantly, it's also about the idea that various people in various ways contribute towards the realization of a common end. Now, within Australian life, I think you're exactly right. That common end has almost always been construed in terms of prosperity. Uh, relative prosperity covers over a multitude of sins within our common life. We're happy to live with people we otherwise don't particularly care for or whose cultures or religions we otherwise look at with a degree of suspicion as long as they bring a degree of uh, a kind of economic contribution along with them. It's really interesting to me. I'm sure you would have picked this up in the report. It's really interesting that despite there being uh, a severe cost of living crisis, that hasn't yet translated into a backlash against migration and migrants. Well, no, I think there's a backlash against migration, but not against multiculturalism. Okay, thank you. That's a much better way of putting it. Or necessarily against migrants for their cultures or their yes. weirdnesses, their differences. As in, um, as in people have come in and... Take, I mean, the logic that goes behind this form of populism that usually accompanies economic crisis is others have come in and taken the jobs that rightly belong to us. It's not just about yeah. there not being enough. It's about we've been purloined. Uh, what was ours, what belongs properly to, quote unquote, Australians um, has been stolen. It, it's good to see that that hasn't had, and sorry, the migration that you refer to there. In other words, it's not, let's call it ethnically Tinged. The idea is there doesn't seem to be enough to go around as it is. We're worried about many more people coming in and using up already scant resources. Yeah. So especially housing. So in, especially in the context housing, of a housing crisis, right. we're going to add half a million people a year, and where are we going to house these people? Mm -hmm. So actually, I, I would even suggest, without being 100% confident, for the first time in Australian history, at least modern Australian history, migration as an issue has become to some meaningful extent divorced from race mm, and ethnicity. I agree. It's actually extraordinary. Yeah. And so people's attitudes to those two things can be teased apart. They're separate. Mm. Now that does bring with it a barb though. And that is if the good of other cultures, if the good of migration is tied to economic well-being, in other words, it's tied to the telos of what contribution they make to our economic life. If it's not a good, let's call it a good in itself in democratic terms, uh, that our national life is better, is stronger, um, precisely because of its diversity, because of its multicultural fabric. That means that it is, and I think this is what you were gesturing towards, that fabric could be particularly susceptible to severe economic crunches. Um, and I think one of the things that the housing shortage, cost of living crisis, we've just witnessed this with the voice referendum, that experience of precarity tends to make us turn inwards. We turn away from our obligations and our considerations to one another. 
and we turn inwards. And when or you explode outwards. Or we explode outwards. Because the, the tension or the frustration or the discontent finds a channel. And it may have nothing to do with the economic roots of it. Yes. But it finds a way of expressing itself in some other socially deleterious way. And that's when it becomes not so much lack of trust, but the other is regarded then as threat. And that's when it becomes then envy or severe mutual suspicion that we are locked together as competitors. Uh, and then that's then what feeds the overarching sense of not just, again, misfortune, this is a bad downturn, but inequality. Something has happened so that the game is rigged against me and I'm being frozen out of it. So uh, I think it's a really important dimension of this report. There is a sunny side to it. And that is that various forms of rich communal life, of the possibility of regarding one another as co-participants within a common political project, these can be nurtured by incredibly material things like mm. homes, like stable and dignified forms of employment. And uh, the other thing, the other thread, of course, that runs through the entire report is the importance of trust in government as, if you like, the incubator for democratic trust in general. Where there are low levels of trust in government, those forms of trust tend to fray and erode at various social levels as well. Where there are high levels of trust in government, government competence, the capacity of government as an agent of good and as committed to forms of equality, fairness, and justice, then that then has a ripple effect on so many of our other uh, forms of relationality and I guess, social trust. I guess it's just as well then that the things you mentioned like providing affordable homes and <laughs> secure jobs are just so easy to solve. Yeah. That's handy. Um, shall we bring in a guest? Yes, please. All right. So now we're joined by... Well, we've been talking about the Scanlon Foundation report. As it happens, we've got the author of that report joining us today. James O'Donnell is a lecturer in the School of Demography at Australian National University. He is the lead investigator on the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute's Mapping Social Cohesion Study. James, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Hello, Scott and Waleed. Great to be with you. So we've just set the table for you. We've made a mess of your report, frankly, James. That's what we've done. <laughs> Would you like to clean it up? <laughs> No, I thought that was um, that was a really important and useful discussion. I mean, I guess one of the things that I'd, I'd start with is that there's no real agreement on what social cohesion means. It does oscillate over time. Every couple of years, there's a new paper that suggests a new understanding, a new measure, a new definition of what social cohesion is in in the academic world. You know, it all probably started. Generally, well, it's been going on for a while, but I guess Emil Durkheim was a big figure towards the end of the 19th century in defining social cohesion as the sort of the absence of conflict and the extent to which we, you know, sort of connect with each other. But and there have di been different strands and, and Sigmund Freud had a go as well from a psychological perspective and talked about it as more in terms of those sort of psychological bonds, those effective bonds that Scott's been talking about. And so that's been, you know, sort of two dominant strands. But in more recent years, last the 20, 30 years, then it gets conflated with things like economic inequality, with terrorism, with national security as well. And so it becomes this sort of flabby concept. In some ways, through this report, I, I kind of embrace that mm. because the definition that, that was came up with by people like Professor Andrew Marcus and the Scanlon Foundation, it, it was really about trying to capture those effective attitudes across multiple dimensions, but very much rooted in the sociological tradition following Durkheim, that it was really about the whole of society functioning, you know, so not just how we feel, but also how we act and how, you know, sort of everything we feel and everything we act sort of hold society together. And so then that makes for an interesting sort of study in the Australian context where over this period in which the study has been running, you know, you have seen this big increase in, in our diversity, for example. And so whereas, you know, sort of traditional definitions have said, well, you don't have to accept diversity to be a cohesive society. You could be a really ethnically homogenous society, for example, and be really cohesive. Um, but that's not the reality for Australia, right? And so the reality of social cohesion in, in Australia is something that has to deal with its lived reality and its diversity. And also, as we've talked about, and I'm sure we'll talk about some more those economic ups and downs. So, James, there is something here that puzzles me. I'll confess, when I hear social cohesion, uh, 
the thing that springs most immediately to mind is Charles Taylor's notion of recognition. It's, it really are those affective bonds whereby we see ourselves and we see one another as co-participants within the conditions of a political project that is worth pursuing, that has a telos, that has an end, that is mutually beneficial, and that kind of renews itself through the process of mutual exchange, of uh, mutual embetterment, of personal sacrifice so that others don't have to go without. You know, those both social and interpersonal rituals whereby others are included, others are built up, and most importantly, some are not left to be humiliated through their exclusion, through being ignored, and so on. We know what a society looks like that suffers from lack of social cohesion. And in those circumstances, unless the state is, unless the nation is to fall apart entirely, it requires an incredibly powerful state. When there are low levels of social belonging, cohesion, mutual recognition, the state has to have an oversized role within the life of that nation, usually through various forms of authoritarian measure. The paradox of your report is that so many aspects of social cohesion depend upon trust in government, political trust, democratic trust, let's put it that way. And then that provides the environment within which other forms of trust, or let's say not having to regard one another as a threat, are then realized. So there's something, there's a delicate balance here, isn't there, that for there to be rich or high high levels of social cohesion, it requires a state, but it can't require too much of the state. Otherwise, those bonds will be left to atrophy in other ways. No, that, that's right. And it's a really beautiful way of putting it. And we see through those interconnections that, you know, our sort of trust in government is related to our, you know, the sense in which we feel a sense of home, a sense of belonging, the sense to which we even we trust other people is related towards, you know, our trust in government. It's hard to establish, you know, sort of cause and effect to A to B, and there's lots of things that go into that. But there is sort of a chain of research that says, suggests that there is that path from, from trust in government and trust in people. And the results that we found through the Mapping Social Cohesion Report suggests that that decline in trust in government over the last few years does help to explain the decline also in our sense of belonging in a place in Australia. I, I wonder, actually to what extent our trust or, or lack of trust in government is seen as the same thing, if not a proxy, for our trust in one another. In other words, what I mean by that is, I'm just playing with this idea, so I'm going to try to get it right in the way I express it. Our sense of each other has become so thoroughly defined through politics that we can no longer hold a position that says we don't trust our government and but we do trust each other. Or we can no longer say, well, I don't trust my fellow Australian that much anymore, but I do at least trust my government. That these things move in identical tracks because politics has become so personalised, so heightened in that way. I know this report was done at the time when the voice referendum was really raging. So that might be an example of how that was expressed. But even in the economic sphere, I don't recall, and I don't think this is just because I'm paying attention in a different way or something like that. I I don't recall a time in in recent history where economic arguments were seen as personal good-evil type arguments in quite the way they are now. You might see this expressed in, I don't know, debates about stage three tax cuts or housing policy or whatever. And I accept that in something like housing, you're dealing with something that is almost by definition existential, right? If you don't have a house, you really are at risk. Your existence is at risk. But these debates seem infused with, call it a moral dimension, but a a dimension of judgment of people who hold other views that I don't quite think I've seen before. Would that be in any way a useful or persuasive explanation of how this trusting government and trusting each other measurement seems to track together, or do you think that's just always been true and always would be true in any society? Well, I find it difficult to imagine too many circumstances where someone would trust government but then not trust other people. I guess the one caveat that Mm. I'd say, there's quite a now famous study that looked at that question of how we trust other people, because it is the most common indicator of, of social cohesion and social capital that's used in the world today. And they were looking at what sort of 
creates that trust in other people. And what they found was that um, more than anything, it reflects how trustworthy we think we are ourselves. Oh. So, <laughs> we, we trust other people if we think we ourselves are trustworthy. But it, it's certainly it's certainly closely related to trust in government. I, I can imagine situations where people generally, and I think this comes out through the survey results, is that people trust one another generally, the people in their own lives and in their family networks and their friendships and their local communities because they have those positive daily interactions but then have a certain often justified cynicism and distrust towards politicians and the political system that then can manifest as quite a large discrepancy in the extent to which we trust other people and the extent to which we trust government. Looking at this cross-nationally, so not just in Australia, if you do look at the countries where trust in government is highest... It's also the case that trust in people is highest. It's not hard for me to imagine the reverse, though, where trust in people is high and trust in government is low. Like, I think a lot of, I can think of a lot of countries like that, usually not democratic ones, I hasten to add, but where there's a sense of the people versus the government. There's there's Mm. a clear separation. The government is seen as a genuine elite that has nothing to do with the people. And I'm on Mm. the people's side, but I'm not on the government's side. I mean, perhaps not relevant to the Australian context of democracy, but theoretically speaking, at least I can see that. I do think there's a slightly different way of construing this, though. I mean, one of the things that is a source of terror of government is that government does not relate to all its citizens equally. That there are some that are singled out for special attention, for preferential treatment, for special handouts, for special rights, for particular affordances. That far from it simply being a matter of kind of good or evil policies, the idea that I am being looked at but not seen, that I am regarded by government but not recognized by it, uh, that then fuels not only that sense of personal humiliation, in other words, what was simply misfortune then becomes thereby injustice, but it's also there are others that are being singled out for government for preferential treatment. So these might then be wealthy donors. These might, and if we go right down, say, the zealous populist spectrum, these might be other migrant groups, other other minority groups that are here being singled out for special treatment, and therefore what is going to them is being denied me. That surely is the greater threat. That's the greater uh, sting than simply regarding all things as being kind of politically tainted and therefore sort of good or evil uh, in some sort of moralized sense. Yes, I think that's right. And I think that um, there is a strong sense in emerging from the survey, but also through other sources and surveys, is the feeling that that trust in government or, or governments of the day are not necessarily, you know, sort of meeting the needs of working people, for example, and meeting the needs of of the big end of town, and that's, that's a question that's specifically used in, in a couple of surveys, and a, a high proportion of people think that. And and so then we see this discrepancy where, you know, the, those that are struggling themselves are much less likely to trust government than other people. I mean, I guess the, the caveat around this, and, and also around that broader question of economic inequality, is that it's not just people themselves that are financially struggling that are reporting a sort of declining sense of trust in government. It's it's also people that are, uh, I guess, more financially comfortable that are also saying that um, we talked about that question about sort of hard work bringing a better life. So more affluent, more comfortable people are also saying that um, they do think that inequality is, is a growing problem in Australia. And so in some sense, that comes up as a, as a negative in our survey. But in some sense, it sort of goes to that point that there is that sort of solidarity with mm. other people, including in, in opposition to either government or general institutions of society that create and um, perhaps enforce this or are seen to create and enforce this inequality. So the, fa- the fact that you have people that are reasonably affluent but are still really concerned about economic inequality, perhaps because of the experience of people they know and the people that and their children and, and the like. But I think there is that solidarity there that nevertheless comes up as a decline in social cohesion, but it is this sort of effective connection with other people and wanting to see that the well-being of other people is looked after by government. Hmm. One of the greatest fissures that you identified in the report, though, is between young and old. Particular, and I mean, this is something that we've seen repeatedly discovered, found, theorized about uh, since 2016. 
By the way, also, the economic conditions of which have just been elucidated in a, in a report that I can't remember who, one of the banks did, about how the cost of living crisis is being visited upon the young while the old are actually having an expansion in their spending and an expansion in their disposable income because they tend to be mortgage-free and they tend to have their savings in deposits and so higher interest rates are actually giving them higher returns and so on. So the economic dimensions of that generation divide or that generation gap are really clear mm. um, and probably underwrites the observations you're talking about, Scott, I, just to interpose that because I think it's important context. And that was something that was, was picked up in a little bit in our survey as well in, I guess, less concrete ways. But the, the fact that it was renters and mortgagees in the 20s, 30s, 40s are most likely to be experiencing financial stress and then, by the same token, most likely to be feeling disconnected and isolated from society. And so this has been a long-running thing where young people or younger adults, I should say, you know, have a, a weaker sense of belonging in Australia, a weaker sense of happiness, weaker sense of financial well-being, a weaker sense of social justice and, and fairness in Australian society. But by the same token, very likely to support and embrace our diversity and multiculturalism. Some of these would almost certainly be sort of modernising kind of factors. The fact that young people today are growing up, going to schools with people from all different backgrounds and have friends from young age from, from a very different background. Diversity is very normal and unremarkable for for many young people in Australia today. I guess that where the concerns lies around those discrepancies between both their financial well-being and then their, I guess what I'd call their their social well-being as well and that weak sense of belonging. In some ways, you'd, you'd hope that grows over time as people age, as people, you know, sort of establish themselves in their local communities and their jobs, obviously. But we haven't been seeing that over the last few years. And so the gap, if anything, is getting wider where older adults generally still have that same sense of connection, where younger adults, even as they age, are in some ways are going a little bit backwards. So there definitely is that generational divide that we have to tap into. There's a lot that goes into it, though. It's complex. I mean, we can see that there is that element of financial well-being for young people plays into it. But, you know, there's obviously all, all sorts of sort of changing social and cultural norms as well that feeds into how people, I guess, identify in, in relation to themselves, their neighbourhoods, their communities, the globe, Australia as a whole. And this is something I'll, I'll confess that really concerns me very, very deeply, I mean, th there is a kind of manifest inequity in the way in which capital, let's just sort of put it in that highfalutin way, capital has been distributed. Um, it is manifestly unequal, and there's no way of really rectifying that without some form of kind of massive government redistribution in the form of, say, inheritance tax or, or, or something like that, or in terms of almost generational philanthropy. There is simply no way of rectifying this. And you can see, can't you, there being a kind of solidarity in precarity among a younger generation of young adults who are, quite frankly, feeling not just insecure in their jobs, but also frozen out of the housing market. Uh, you can see those forms of otherwise kind of social diversity being overcome through being thrown together in a state of shared uncertainty and relative deprivation. You can also see then that being mapped onto growing concerns over climate change and growing concerns about, say, uh, a kind of generational obstruction to certain forms of social policy that would be incredibly beneficial to leveling the political and economic playing field. I mean, this is something that numerous political philosophers, Pierre Rosavallon has, I think, demonstrated it quite beautifully and even convincingly. Bonnie Honig has also uh, drawn attention to it. The possibility of generational envy with a capital E. Um, and remember that, you know, Rawls, I think, rightly pointed out that envy is the acid that eats away at the foundation of a just society once envy has taken root, once it's begun to eat away at these common bonds. There's almost no way of coming back from that shy of forms of political violence. So I, I guess it's that generational envy, especially if it becomes kind of overlapped with all these different determinants, economic, cultural, 
but then also mapping climate change onto it, there's something there that could be far more concerning even than, say, um, ethnic or minority-majority uh, culture tensions. Well, there's that sense that we spoke about a few weeks ago in one of our shows, Scott, about younger people feeling effectively politically, like structurally excluded from politics. Mm, that's so right. There's no mechanism they by just which they're used. Yeah. yeah, although they do occasionally. This is the thing. Is that maybe they've started winning a little more. But yes, generally speaking, on the kinds of issues you're talking about, housing and climate being the most obvious examples, they're not. And so clearly... I think we've trodden over the, you know, the economic dimensions of this quite well, but may I offer what would be perhaps somehow simultaneously a conservative and new left <laughs> interpretation of how this might be happening is, or just as another factor, these generations that we're talking about, what did we say, up to about the 40s, something like that? They are also probably the most cosmopolitan generations that have lived and grown up in the most cosmopolitan surrounds and with the most cosmopolitan aspirations, I guess, or, or worldviews. And the thing about that sort of thing, and here I, I mean, you know, very globally connected and comfortable with globalisation or at least embedded within it, like their whole lives they've been dropped within it. And one of the things that that does is it changes or perhaps even erodes the elements of civil society that might be your mechanisms for belonging, right? Mm, Here you, you could nominate whatever old world examples you want. It could be the church. It could be, I was going to say, unions, which are increasingly in decline. It could be other civil society institutions, sporting groups. I was thinking about this the other day. I've, Scott, as you would know, I'm a big fan of cricket and I played a lot of cricket as a kid. I was talking to a friend of mine who I met playing cricket who was just bringing me up to speed on the, the decline in suburban cricket clubs, right? They're the, the really just disappearing now. Clubs that were once huge had eight teams, now have one or two, right? So all these little sites for social engagement of a kind of a thicker society have kind of been eroded, haven't they, through a sort of more atomized, perhaps even digitized way of living. Our information is impersonal now. The same cohort that is financially struggling in a cost of living crisis will have travelled more internationally than their forebears who are now doing well but have probably didn't travel at all through the bulk of their lives. That there is something about the every awareness of things, of the, the cosmopolitanization of things that cannot help but thin out the sort of local bonds, the local connections that exist between people. And I wonder if, not to discount at all the economic stuff, but it might mean that these are generations that are kind of ripe for feeling alienated if things turn a certain way, mm. that the resilience of the social bonds perhaps isn't the same as they might have been in previous less globalised generations who, to be honest, probably lived through some tougher material conditions than we're living through even now. I think that's right. And I think it goes to the point that I sometimes come to is that you know, the future of this is really unknown and we don't really know how this is going to play out. In some senses, young people, it changes, right? And even how we understand and measure something like social occasion really has to change with the times and keep up with the times. Whether it kind of leads to sort of an atomization or not, I, th I think is an open question though, because preferences and tastes change, right? So it's a great anecdote with the, with the cricket clubs. But when this sort of first came up in the early 2000s, I guess it was about bowling leagues, how bo bowling leagues in, in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, you know, Rob Putnam alone and thing, his yeah. bowling alone, right? And so his analogy was how the bowling leagues had become less popular. And, and that's true. But things also shift and I guess we've got to keep up with how people's connections and how they relate to one another and to their worlds around them change in not always bad ways. So it might appear to us especially coming from an earlier generation, as if it is more atomization. But I guess we've, we've also got to understand it from their perspective, how they see their connections. But those divides, I think, are very real. But how that plays out, so it's going to be different. So when I look around the world now and I see, you know, very polarised electoral outcomes, for example, you know, sort of populist far right, centrist and some populist left, around the world, fighting it out over very sort of divisive political debates. And we've kind of avoided that so far, but, you know, I th think we have to guard against that. But by the same token, when, when you look 
10, 15, 20 years from now, are we really going to be having those same debates, uh, you know, around the world around whether we're sort of anti-migrant or not, when just an ever larger proportion of us continue to come from migrant backgrounds, know people, have friends, have grown up with people from all sorts of different backgrounds. I mean, that the sort of threats that we see and that kind of nature of that atomization and to where we direct our sense of insecurity and suspicion and threat um, could yeah, be the very growing different. migration hasn't exactly calmed things across Europe or even in places that we think of as, you know, havens of equality like in Scandinavia where, mm. you know, anti-immigrant far-right parties are getting into government or in, at least into governing coalitions because of a suspicion of... Like in some ways, when you see an increase in migration, you may get a resistance to that. It just depends on the circumstances, I think, of it and the social conditions into which something like that lands. Mm, I think there's a persuasive argument to say Australia is very different to Europe because it's a new world country, if you like, rather than sort of an old world country. And so migration and flux and change and the baggage of centuries of cultural tradition that you have in Europe isn't quite the same here and all that sort of thing. And you look at the United States has tended to be more comfortable with that level of diversity and Australia than in Europe. I can see those sort of arguments, but I don't know that there's a direct correlation in and of itself between high levels of migration or exposure to migrants and a kind of easy acceptance of this fact, maybe over centuries, I don't know. But I don't know, the early field evidence doesn't seem as though it's a slam dunk. It's certainly an open question. There's been a kind of active academic debate for a good 60, 70 years. Some of the ideas around what was called the the Kumbaya theory of intergroup contact theory, suggesting that Exactly, that this, these interactions that we have over time lead to sort of harmonious relations. And so, as I say, that was sort of criticised as almost a sort of kumbaya sort of approach. But in reality, what that theory does, it actually steps out very specific conditions under which that would occur. So if there is a sense of inequality or difference or suspicion between groups, if governments and political parties are not facilitating and enabling those sort of positive relationships, well, you are going to have conflict. We must end there, James. Um, Apart from anything else, you've got to get to a meeting, so (laughs) we better let you go. (laughs) Thanks very much for the report, by the way, and also for coming on to discuss it with us. That's been great. James O'Donnell teaches and researches demography at the ANU, also the lead investigator of the Scanlon Foundation's Mapping Social Cohesion Study, which we've been discussing throughout this edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. Just a reminder, of course, very, very soon... We will be doing our final show for the year, but also our final Not Quite a Book Club or whatever it's called. This time, looking at Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Imbibe it any way you can. Go see a production of it, have a read of it. I don't know, is there a film, Scott? Uh, I don't know. But whatever it is, whatever you need to do, take it in. And your homework must be completed by somewhere around the 13th of December. You should be all right if you've done it by then. And we can't wait to get stuck into that. It's a great way for us to end the year, we think. So join us for that and join us next week on The Minefield. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.